We've been working our way passage by passage to the book of Acts, and today the next passage we come to is Acts 15, 1 through 21. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and in order to keep, have them keep the law of Moses. Well, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, <laughs> God made a choice among you, and by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinctions between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. So now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. May God bless the reading of his word. Mindful, though, that though your word is perfect, we are not. <laughs> and so we need your spirit, Lord. We need.
Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who inspired these words to be written, to now come and illuminate this text and help us, Lord, to see everything you would have us see, to be changed in every way you would have us be changed, and to marvel, perhaps more than we've ever marveled before, at this wonderful gospel of grace that we believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you know that this church started as a small three-person Bible study in Becky and I's home, and that two of those three people were Becky and myself. Um, And uh, typically, as you might imagine, the general idea with uh, starting a church like that is to invite more and more people to attend it, right? So that the study can grow and become larger and eventually become a church. And yet, there was one person that I actually had to uninvite from this Bible study. Uh, If I remember correctly, this is the only person I've ever had to uninvite from anything, any kind of meeting or study. And the reason is that this person was actively propagating a teaching that undermines the gospel. He was actually starting his own church out near Monroeville and knew uh, a lot about the Bible and really had the potential to be quite uh, influential and persuasive. And yet he was seeking in subtle or sometimes not so subtle ways to convince the rest of the people of the group about this teaching. A teaching that might at first seem to be you know, relatively harmless, but was not. Like, it, it's not like he was denying the deity of Christ or you know, saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or something like that. Now, this is a teaching that might not initially seem to be like that big of a deal. In fact, many people would probably say that we're splitting hairs by even talking about it. But make no mistake. This is an issue that's absolutely fundamental to Christianity and to the Christian gospel. Uh, In many ways, it's a lot like uh, perhaps that game you you remember playing, Jenga, right? Where you have that, that tower that you build out of these wooden rectangular blocks, and then you take turns trying to remove those blocks without the whole tower falling down. And so if you picture the gospel as, you know, one of those Jenga towers, the issue we'll be discussing is like that one block near the bottom of the tower that might not seem to be that significant at first. However, if you remove it, the entire tower tumbles down. And we see that issue right here in Acts 15, 1 through 21. Now, to remind you of the context from the previous chapter here, Paul and Barnabas have just returned from their first missionary journey and are residing in the city of Antioch. We then read this in Acts 15, 1 through 21. Or, excuse me, just verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the reason these men would say something like this is because the Old Testament 
law, referred to here as the custom of Moses, required circumcision for all Jewish males. This was a ritual that actually went all the way back to Abraham. God had told Abraham that he and all of his male descendants needed to be circumcised as a sign that they were God's chosen people. So circumcision was very special to the Jews because it marked them off from the rest of the world and indicated that they had this unique relationship with God. Now, as we've been seeing here in the book of Acts for the past several chapters, Paul's missionary efforts have resulted in a lot of Gentiles, that is, people who aren't Jews and who, of course, haven't been circumcised, putting their faith in Jesus. And that was extremely disturbing to these men from Judea mentioned in verse 1 because they believed quite passionately that the Gentile converts needed to be first circumcised before they could be truly saved. So essentially, they needed to become Jews before they could become Christians. That's why this group has subsequently earned the name of Judaizers. In the minds of these Judaizers, you had to become Jewish before becoming Christian. And any short-circuiting of that process was scandalous. And we then see Paul and Barnabas' response to the Judaizers in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so Paul and Barnabas recognize that this is a gospel issue and therefore one of primary importance. In fact, it's difficult to think of anything more important than the ultimate question that this issue is related to, the, the question of what someone needs to do in order to be saved. So after no small dissension and debate with the Judaizers, Paul and Barnabas go to the apostles and the church leaders in Jerusalem for some help resolving the issue. Then verses 4 and 5. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, we read here that there were actually some Pharisees who had become Christians. And by the way, that's, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Like, what a great reminder that God is able to save anybody. Like, nobody is beyond the saving power of the gospel. Now, as we look at this passage, it's probably best to distinguish between these Pharisees here in verse 5 and the Judaizers mentioned back in verse 1. Unlike the Judaizers, whom we should regard as heretics and not true Christians, verse 5 describes the Pharisees as believers. So apparently, they had embraced the true gospel. However, they nevertheless had a distorted understanding of how Christians need to relate to the Old Testament law. Like they weren't saying that the Gentile converts needed to, to, to be circumcised and to keep the law in order to obtain salvation. 
but they were saying that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be fully obedient as those who had been saved. In other words, circumcision may not be necessary for salvation, but it is necessary for obedience, at least according to these believing Pharisees and what they were claiming. The story then continues in verses 6 through 9. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter here is referring to the events of Acts 10 involving a Gentile named Cornelius and his household. Essentially, Peter's argument is that if God gave the Holy Spirit to those Gentiles without the Gentiles first being circumcised, well, that proves that circumcision isn't necessary for salvation. God himself already settled the matter decisively with his gift of the Spirit. He had clearly accepted Cornelius and his household even apart from circumcision. And so, like, who were these Judaizers to say otherwise? Who were they to require something for salvation that God himself hadn't required? Peter then concludes his argument in this way, in verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now that phrase, putting God to the test, is a reference to what the rebellious Israelites did back in their 40 years of desert wanderings. And Paul then refers to the Old Testament law as, quote, a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. If you approach the law as a means to salvation, you've taken on an impossible task, a yoke or a burden that's way too heavy for you to bear. Like, imagine trying to, to run a marathon or something with a 500-pound rucksack strapped to your back, right? It doesn't matter how strong or how physically fit you are. Nobody's able to shoulder that kind of a burden. Every, and likewise, nobody's able to earn God's favor or merit eternal life by keeping the law. Every single person who's ever tried, has, without exception, failed miserably. That approach to the law turns the law into a yoke, Peter says, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And saying that, uh, Peter's also likely referring to the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in your heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And that's essentially what Peter goes on to explain back in our main text. Again, verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The key word there is grace. The only way anyone can ever be saved is through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And I'm not sure there's ever been any concept more revolutionary than this concept of grace. To say that we're saved by grace is the exact opposite of saying that we're saved by merit. There's nothing meritorious about it. Grace is totally and absolutely undeserved. And that is the very heart of the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. It's the good news that Jesus has already accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for our salvation. He bore the yoke of the law that was exponentially beyond our ability to bear. And then after bearing that yoke in our place and living a life of perfect righteousness and obedience to the law in our place, Jesus then died in our place, taking on himself the judgment that we deserve. So all of that judgment that should have been poured out on you and me, the lawbreakers, was instead poured out on Jesus, the lawkeeper. He endured what we deserved. And then, triumphantly, resurrected from the dead after that so that we also can share in his cosmic victory over sin and death. However, in order for that to happen, the Bible's very clear that we have to repent. We have to turn away from all of our misguided efforts at trying to keep the law as a means to salvation and instead look to Jesus and him alone, as the one who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. We have to embrace this gospel of grace. And so grace is absolutely fundamental to the gospel. It's like the gospel's DNA. And that's essentially what Peter's arguing here. Without grace, there is no gospel. And that's the main thrust, not only of Peter's argument, but of the entire passage. <laughs> Without grace, there is no gospel. So if you distort grace by claiming that law-keeping is necessary for salvation, you've just lost the gospel. The entire Jenga tower collapses. It doesn't matter if it's just one little tiny act of obedience that you're requiring as a, a means to salvation. 
The entire tower collapses. We're saved, dear friends, by grace alone and never by grace plus something else. You can mark it down as a universal truth that anyone who teaches that we're saved by grace plus something else is actually, in effect, saying that we're not really saved by grace at all, but rather by that additional requirement. The moment you add anything to grace, you lose grace and therefore lose the gospel. Because like we said, without grace, there is no gospel. Now, sticking with the analogy to mathematics, but changing it up a little bit, it's a lot like a mathematical formula. For example, going back to high school math here, perhaps some of you remember this amazing thing called the Pythagorean theorem, all right? And that is that A squared plus B squared equals C squared. This helps you determine the longest side, the, the length of the longest side of a right triangle. So you guys didn't even think you were getting math this morning, did you? But I won't even charge you for it. It's all, it's all free. But A squared plus B squared equals C squared, where A is the length of one of the shorter sides. Am I right, Natalie? All right, good. Math tutor here. B is the uh, length of one of the other shorter side, and then C is the length of the longest side. So if you were to add anything to this equation, what would happen? Well, the whole thing would be worthless, right? Like if you were to add like the number four right before the letter A, or or if you were to to add a, a three right after the letter C, like the entire theorem would would be ruined, right? It would be completely worthless for determining anything. It wouldn't be true anymore. So if you add anything to the Pythagorean theorem, you lose the Pythagorean theorem. Likewise, the moment you add anything to grace, you lose grace and therefore lose the gospel. Now, maybe there are some here who are thinking that perhaps I'm being a little dramatic about all of this and and exaggerating things just a bit. I mean, is requiring circumcision or some other act of obedience for salvation really such a big deal? Well, let's look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. You see, these same Judaizers that Peter and Paul were dealing with here in Acts 15 were actually influencing the churches of Galatia as well. And so Paul writes the letter to the Galatians to deal with the situation. And with the influence of the Judaizers in mind, he states in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. I said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. So, notice the severity of Paul's language here. Apparently, He didn't think it was a secondary issue. 
He first says in verse 6 that he's astonished at the situation and then accuses the Galatians of deserting God. He then refers to the teaching they've embraced that, that had come from the Judaizers' influence on them. He refers to that as what? A different gospel. Not a misunderstanding of some of the details of the gospel, not a variation of the gospel, but rather a different gospel, which, of course, is really no gospel at all, as Paul makes clear in verse 7. He then states in verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So just imagine for a moment that an angel from heaven, like with all of its glory and splendor, really did come to you. Like maybe you were in your home or maybe it came to you when you were attending a Bible study and, and it started teaching you certain things about Jesus. Like a real angel made itself visible and started speaking to you in an audible voice and teaching you certain things. Maybe it would try to convince you that, uh, let's say, some of your interpretations of the Bible were wrong. Now, wouldn't that be maybe just a bit tempting to listen to this incredible creature? However, Paul says here that even if such a thing happened and an angel from heaven tried to get us to believe that something in addition to grace is necessary for salvation, we'd have to reject it. Under no circumstances can we ever deviate from this particular understanding of grace that's at the very center of the gospel. The great reformer Martin Luther once referred to the teaching that we're justified in God's sight by grace alone and through faith alone as, quote, the article by which the church stands or falls. And with good reason. Again, the moment you add anything to grace, you lose grace and therefore lose the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I personally haven't had anyone try to convince me of exactly what the Judaizers were claiming here in Acts 15. Right? Nobody's ever tried to persuade me that circumcision is necessary for salvation. However, there are other things that various groups like to add as a requirement for salvation. One of the most obvious of these ways is baptism. By the way, that's the error that the guy I had to kick out of the Bible study, that's what he was teaching. He was a part of a group called the Church of Christ that teaches that water baptism is necessary for salvation. So like if someone, let's say, would put their faith in Jesus and then be on the road going to, going to get baptized, but they would die before they got there, they would go to hell, at least according to the, the Church of Christ. And then there's also another group that teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation, a group that's much larger and more widespread than the Church of Christ, and uh, that would be the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, according to the official catechism 
of the Roman Catholic Church, published in 1992, right? So this isn't something published in the 1500s. This is, some, this is 1992 here. It says, quote, through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. It, that would be baptism, it signifies and actually brings about the birth of water and the spirit without which no one can enter the kingdom of God. Baptism is necessary for salvation. So again, all of that is an exact, no commentary added, word-for-word quote of the official Catholic catechism. Now, I'm really not sure it could be communicated any more clearly than that. Uh, However, unfortunately, even though it's clear, it is, I believe, also wrong. And not just wrong, but so wrong. And on such a critical issue that I believe we have to conclude that, as Galatians says, it is a different gospel. Essentially, it's really just the Galatian heresy 2.0. The same basic heresy that the Judaizers were teaching 2,000 years ago. They've just replaced circumcision with baptism. And to be clear, I am aware that Catholic theologians still claim to believe in salvation by grace. In fact, they're adamant that they believe in salvation by grace. Uh, They simply believe that that grace is received through baptism. And so they claim baptism isn't a meritorious work, but simply a channel by which grace is received. And that might sound pretty good at first. However, the problems become clear when you start examining the claims of the Judaizers and the response of Paul here in Galatians 1, right? I'm sure that these Judaizers were saying the same thing. Oh, we're not teaching that, that you can earn your salvation, right? We're, we're, just, we're teaching that we believe in salvation by grace. It's just that circumcision is this this thing you need to do in order to receive grace. I could totally picture a Judaizer saying that. Yet Paul's like, nope. (laughs) What you're teaching is a different gospel. Listen, anytime you require any act or ritual of any kind, for salvation. You've departed from the true gospel. It doesn't matter if you say that it's not a work or if you claim to still believe in grace. What you're teaching is still a departure from the gospel. And so the critical thing to observe in official Catholic teaching is that even though they claim to still believe in salvation by grace, they won't claim to believe in salvation by grace alone. Catholic theologians will very intentionally avoid that word alone. And that's a clear indication that they don't believe in salvation by grace alone, but rather by grace plus something else. In this case, grace plus baptism. And as we know, the moment you add anything to grace, what happens? You lose grace and therefore lose the gospel. 
Now, let me be clear that I do believe there are many genuine Christians who are going to heaven, who identify themselves as Catholic. So please understand, uh, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all Catholics are going to hell or anything like that. Now, I'm fearful that many of them may go to hell, but also hopeful that many of them won't. It's really a lot like Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterians. It's, it's just a mixed bag. And Jesus refers to it in Matthew 13 as the wheat and the tares. And so within any denomination, there's going to be certain people who are saved affiliating with that denomination and certain people who are not saved affiliating with that denomination. However, here's the difference. Someone who affiliates as a, a Catholic will only go to heaven in spite of official Catholic theology, not because of it. Again, someone who identifies as a Catholic will only go to heaven in spite of official Catholic theology, not because of it. So I believe it's possible for someone who is genuinely saved to identify as a Catholic and to affirm, even affirm various Catholic doctrinal statements, but not really understand the full implications of those things that they're affirming. And if that's the case for someone, then yes, I absolutely believe that they would be saved and, and that we'll see them in heaven. However, as we talk about all this, let's not get so carried away with evaluating other groups that we don't evaluate ourselves. Because the fact is that the mentality that relies on human works and human performance isn't limited to certain denominational groups. As I alluded to a moment ago, it's present in various forms within every denomination. And the form it most often takes is what I'll call moralism. The idea that we can earn God's favor and earn a right standing before him through good moral behavior. In fact, I'll even go so far as to say that moralism is our default setting. Like if you were to uh, purchase a, a new laptop or a tablet, then, and it would come out of the box with certain settings preloaded onto it, right? Like you wouldn't have to configure it to have those settings. It would automatically have those settings by default. And similarly, our default spiritual setting is a moralistic mentality. Now, of course, embracing the gospel involves renouncing that mentality, as every true Christian has done. However, that doesn't mean there aren't some, still some lingering moralistic tendencies within our hearts. And so the, with the time we have left, let's look a little closer at ourselves. Those of us who are Christians might not be embracing moralism in an overt way, but may still have some subtle tendencies toward moralism within us. So for example, have you ever been tempted to think that God loves you more on days when you're a good Christian than he, days, he does on days when you struggle as a Christian? Let's say theoretically that one day you do all these really good things, right? Let's say you spend an hour that morning reading the Bible. And then you go out and you, you have a wonderful gospel conversation with someone who doesn't know Jesus yet. 
And then you go out and you help out at, at a soup kitchen. And then you, you come home and, and maybe you cook a, a nice three-course meal for your spouse. Right? You do all these uh, amazing things. It's a wonderful day. But then the next day comes and, you know, let's say things don't go so well. <laughs> let's say you oversleep and so you, you end up skipping your morning Bible reading time. And then you, you miss an easy opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. And, and uh, you, maybe you avert your eyes from the person on the, the street corner asking uh, for, for help. And, and you, you get home and you yell at your spouse instead of cooking dinner for them. And then to top it all off, at the end of the day, you're just so frustrated with anything that everything that you you kick the dog. I don't know. It's just a bad day, right? Now, perhaps after those two days, you might be tempted to think that God loves you a little bit more on that first day than he did on the second. But that's moralism. That's not the gospel. Because in reality, according to the gospel, God's love and acceptance aren't conditioned on our performance. The, the wonderful and revolutionary truth of the gospel is that you don't have to be good enough or perform well enough for God to love and accept you. No, God loves you because he loves you and accepts you because of Jesus. Or consider this example. When you've sinned, as lamentably we all do on a regular basis, have you ever been tempted to think that a certain amount of time has to elapse before you can ask for God's forgiveness and be restored to close fellowship with him? As if God's keeping you at an arm's length and that you have to spend a certain amount of time in the doghouse, so to speak, before God will really accept you again? Or maybe... You're even tempted to think that you have to somehow make up for your sin by performing what are sometimes called acts of penance, even if you don't think in that, in that language. Well, dear friend, that also is a form of moralism. In reality, Jesus has already paid for every sin you'll ever commit and has also clothed you with his perfect righteousness. And so when God the Father looks at you, that's what he sees. He sees nothing but the perfect righteousness of his son. Now, yes, of course, we, we repent of sin on a regular basis, but we do so simply to restore our close fellowship with God and not in any way to fix our standing with God. Our standing with him never fluctuates. Because it's based on God's grace, not on our performance. And finally, as we're examining our hearts for tendencies toward moralism, let me ask you this. Are you ever tempted to feel superior to others? Maybe you see something, someone living in sin in a very obvious way, and you feel a little bit superior to them. Or maybe you see someone experiencing the consequences for poor choices they've made, and you feel superior. Or maybe, even within this church, you see a Christian brother or sister who is struggling in a certain area. Or maybe they're, they're simply not as far along as you are 
in a certain area, and you feel superior. All of that is moralism. Plain and simple. It's a sign that you haven't fully understood all of the implications of this biblical teaching of grace. As is so often said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The strongest Christian dare not boast, and the weakest Christian need not despair. Because we're all perfectly loved and accepted in Christ. So have you grasped that reality? Do you live it? (laughs) Breathe it? Rest in it and rejoice in it throughout each day? Let me tell you something. There are so many books and, and other resources that claim to to show how you can experience greater peace and joy in your life. Like they'll suggest various practices and and sometimes even outline several steps to help get you there. But in reality, there's actually just one step to experiencing greater peace and joy in your life, ultimately. And that is to swim deeper and deeper into this ocean of grace. Immerse yourself in its unfathomable depths. Be amazed by its immensity. Be dazzled by its treasures. And let God's grace be the all-consuming reality of your life.